You are listening to the podcast of Called to Communion. More podcasts and other information can be found at www.calledtocommunion.com. Welcome, everyone, to Call to Communion podcast number 14. I am your host for this episode, Tom Riello, and we have a very special guest joining us this week, and that is one Mark Ayers. Mark has come into the Catholic Church. He has been in the Catholic Church for just over five years now. Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks, Tom. It's good to be here. Mark, uh, let's jump right in. I'm very intrigued about your story. If you would, um, can you talk to us a little bit about how you came upon the question of the Catholic Church and how it relates to your embrace of presuppositional apologetics? Uh, sure, sure. Uh, the the thumbnail sketch of how I came to the church was um, basically a, a study of, of church history and, and actually a combination of church history and apologetics. Um, they, they kind of coming at, at the question from two different sides led me to the kind of inescapable conclusion that, well, I, I need to be in, in the Catholic Church. I can see that it is the church founded by Christ, and, and that's, where, that's where we need to be. Uh, previous, previously, I was in uh, a PCA background. I grew up ARP, which is Associate Reformed Presbyterian, uh, in Central Florida, and was very, very involved in the church there. Uh, ended up after college, going to Reformed Theological Seminary in Orlando for a short time, but was you know, heavily involved in apologetics, and, and that's kind of the direction that I wanted to go. I wanted to teach. I wanted to defend the faith. I wanted to work with youth and this type of, this type of thing. Um, I was always interested in apologetics. Uh, I was, in fact, when I was in college, I was a physics major, and I initially wanted to go do engineering, and and the more I was involved with some of the campus ministry work there, the more I was I got involved just because I was on a big state university, so there were a lot of people attacking the, the Christian groups and so forth. And uh, so I just, in, just was really drawn to these engagements, these philosophical engagements. And ultimately, that kind of it was through that that I decided to go to seminary and switch my major over to philosophy and pursue that, that angle, which I really enjoy my uh, apologetics background, I suppose, was more um, what you might call classical apologetics. A lot of evidences for the faith, which are all you know very good. A lot of you'd find this stuff in like the Josh McDowell books, and here's all the history and the historical uh, evidences for the accuracy of the canon and 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 so forth. Um, it was after college when I was then thinking about okay, where do I want to be. Uh, in seminary, trying to decide where I wanted to be, and I, I went up with a friend and visited Westminster Seminary and was introduced to presuppositional apologetics uh, by one of the professors there. I had never heard of it, and he said, well, you need to listen to this debate, and he handed me a tape, and it was a debate of a gentleman named Dr. Greg Bonson, who I came to be something of a disciple of later, and he was debating an atheist uh, named Gordon Stein, who's actually a, a fairly famous debate now that took place in 1985 out at UC Irvine. Um, it was even, you know, even according to the campus newspaper out there, um, which was not favorable to Christianity, it was a complete just massacre in in the uh, in in the in favor of Dr. Bonson. I mean, he just really kind of. Uh, 
cut the legs out of the atheistic position using this method. And basically, just for, you know, uh, for people who aren't familiar with the presuppositional method, unlike what would be termed the classical method, which is just here, here is a, an argument as to why there, for example, had to be a first cause, or, or here's an argument as to why there had to, you know, has to be an, an intelligent um, being that it is a creator. Uh, what, what the presuppositionalist argument does is it instead attacks the underpinnings of your opponent's argument, mm-hmm. and it just kind of leaves your opponent without the ability to really say anything. And, and, and it does that by asking, what are the preconditions for intelligibility? In other words, what are the preconditions that, m- what are those things that must exist from the outset in order for you to be able to make any sense out of your position at all? And it asks those questions, and it forces your opponent to really probe his own uh, presumptions to see whether he can make sense of them. And if he can't, then then he doesn't really have much to say. The easiest way to, to see that was in this debate with an atheist who, and that's the, this method works very very well there. And a lot of a lot of times people use it and don't know that they're using it. For example, when you um, and this happened during the debate, of course. When you're talking about the question of evil, mm-hmm. and if, and atheists love to use that question, and and uh, it's like, well, how can there be an all good God and evil in the world, and so forth? Well, one one approach to that, which would not be the presuppositional approach, would be to, but it's still valid as far as it goes. Would be to say, well, look, I can give you. Here's a bunch of reasons I can give you as to why God would allow evil, and you kind of engage the uh, the the atheist without really attacking his presuppositions. The, the the presuppositionalist would come in and say, wait, 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 wait. I'm not I'm not going to let you engage with me as though we're on the same uh, playing board. You showed up here with a the pre, the presupposition of there is no God. Well, if you've done that, then the first question you're going to have to ask: You keep talking about evil, but on the atheistic worldview, there is no such thing as evil. Things might be painful, but they're not evil. How can an atheist even talk about evil? Because what does evil assume? Well, if you talk about evil, it assumes some ultimate framework of good and evil that you are appealing to that applies to everybody. And so you ask the atheist, how do you even justify on the atheist worldview that that uh, assumption that there are things that are evil? Ultimately, it just devolves into, no, you, you just don't like it. Yeah. But that's irrelevant. Yeah. And so that's one example of how you would attack, and of course, Bonson... If people are familiar with that debate, attacks them on many other things, the laws of logic, which, you know, how can you even debate at all as, a, as an atheist or do any science whatsoever as an atheist? Because on the atheist worldview, there is no such thing as ultimate laws of any kind, science, logic, morality, of anything like that. So it's, it's really kind of a devastating philosophical approach that was um, uh, form. I mean, I wouldn't say it was it – was, initially formulated, but it was kind of made most famous or, or put into its, its uh, most proper form by Cornelius Van Til, yes. who was a professor at Westminster Seminary, one of the original uh, few that came over from when, when they uh, formed Westminster out of, out of Princeton in the 30s. And uh, Dr. Bonson was one of his most famous students and, uh, and was able to use this method to just devastating um, effect in in that debate and and many others, um, 
and it, I, I must have listened to that debate a hundred times on on this tape, and it was through that that I just really became I I I, I kind of got it, and I and I understood this is this really goes to the heart of many of these these arguments, and so I got very much into that. I was uh, that that was the direction I wanted to go when I got to RTS. Um, Ultimately, I left RTS and and did some work. Uh, just lived at home and did and did work for the state. But at the same time, I was taking courses from Dr. Bonson's Institute in Southern California, all on apologetics and on uh, in this methodology and in defending the faith and so forth. Um, it one thing that's very interesting is in this whole uh, time, one question did keep coming up, mm-hmm. and it was the question of the canon. Because what the Christian presuppositionalist does is says, okay, I can, I can, you know, here's all his opponents outside of him, and he can kind of pop the bubble that they're all standing on mm-hmm. and say, well, none of you can make any sense of, you know, logic, morality, science, anything on your worldviews. But I can because I have this biblical, you know, my, yes, it's my presupposition that the Bible is true, that it's God's word, but it makes sense. It's internally consistent and so forth. And I understood that as far as it went. But then when I started to ask, okay, well, but what if someone said, but how do you know that, I mean, how can you justify your own worldview, which is this book? Like, how do you know for certain that those, that those volumes that are in that book, those letters, those books, actually are what they say they are? Mm-hmm. I mean... If, you, if, if all that it requires is to just tell a good story that's internally consistent and you can stand on it, well, then anybody could do that. Mm-hmm. You just make up your own story and say, here's my worldview, and it makes sense. Um, in fact, some, I found later, would just take the Christian message and just kind of write their own little story. They were trying to show the weaknesses in presuppositionalism. They would write their own story that kind of parroted Christianity but wasn't exactly it. And they said, okay, well, there. There's my story about how God came to earth and revealed certain truths, but it's not the Christian story. But I can stand on it and make sense out of things. I have a God, so I have th- I have laws, universal laws uh, that I can appeal to, and here's my standard. And, and and how do we deal with these other religions and so forth? And it, it those those questions kind of gnawed at me for a while. It's like how do I how do I then turn that that question inward? On, for example, the canon of Scripture itself, oh. like how how would I, as a presuppositionalist, defend the canon or defend certain doctrines or teachings out of the canon? But for the most part, I kind of put those questions out of my mind uh, and and just kind of moved on. Um, it was I ended up going to law school in '95 and uh, graduated in '98. During that time, I uh, uh, began to study under a gentleman who had gone to Westminster, got his MDiv and THM from Westminster, but who then became Anglican, kind oh, of a reformed okay. Anglican, uh, very orthodox, you know, uh, very in- engaged in church history and in the sacraments and this type of thing. But we studied together Calvin's Institutes. Um, we studied um, the Defense of the Faith by Van Til. And so we were very much uh, of the same mindset. And I really enjoyed that. But then our studies began to turn over about a four- or five-year period. And it turned out that my uh, 
that my wife ultimately she wasn't my wife initially but uh also was doing this this study along with me our our studies began to turn to church history and the sacraments and things like apostolic succession which of course he held to now as an anglican mm-hmm. and so forth all these things were kind of foreign to me but one of the first things that we studied was the council of nicaea okay and it was something of an eye opener because his question that he and he just kind of let us get to this answer said now look what's going on at nicaea is you have this kind of in-house battle about the very fundamental question of christianity who is jesus and how did they resolve that question and of course from my pca standpoint i was like well you just open you go to the bible you open it up and you read it there it is there's trinity he's god's son he's god himself um but he said well now but wait a minute uh that's not exactly how they resolved that question you had different factions with different you know areas had lots of different bible verses um, he had lots of bishops with him. In fact, initially more because there were more Eastern bishops there. Mm-hmm. And and so it wasn't just open up the Bible and answer the question. And it was through this kind of back and forth and looking at, at, at how they resolved this question. It, it wasn't just this obvious point that that anyone, you know, and Arius didn't show up with horns and a cape and to where you could say, well, he's a bad guy and he... Many of the Arians thought that they were actually defending what they understood to be the true faith. Mm-hmm. So how do you answer this question? And I began to, to wrestle with this. I was like, okay, well, it does seem now that we are attacking or at least questioning the very underpinnings and presumptions of Christianity. And I had to come to the realization, and eventually I did, that the doctrines that we hold to are not self-evident from Scripture. In other words, you, like if you if you handed the Bible to a, you know a Martian comes down, he's had no background with Christianity whatsoever. He's never heard of it. He hasn't grown up in America with all the various Christian references to Jesus being divine and all the rest. Has no familiarity with it whatsoever. And you hand him a Bible, and he just takes it off to Mars and reads it. The idea that he's going to come back to Earth with a Nicene Creed is yeah, it's possible, but highly unlikely. There's any number of as we see, you know, just looking around, I mean, there's any number of different philosophies that people come up with to, uh, you know, in, in giving them the Bible an honest read. They say, well, I think this, and they put it together in any number of ways. And so this question of authority really kind of got to me. And, I, and you know, the question that he put to us is, all right, so it seemed like a bunch of men named bishops all got together and voted and answered the question. Now they either had authority to do this, or they didn't. And so, and 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 all of this was really kind of shaking my foundation. <laughs> this is very unsettling because I just thought, wait a minute, these are questions that nobody would, you know, could could ever possibly uh, have a have a serious debate about. I mean, we're kind of done with these. These are obvious points, and I had to realize, wait a minute, it's not obvious. Yeah. These things do have to be resolved, and they are big, essential points. And so it really kind of forced me to view, all right, well, how do I justify this? And that's where the presuppositional method kind of reared its head again, but it forced me to the angle. I had to start asking the question, okay, what is essential in order for a Christian to be able to know, defend, and define the faith? 
What do you have to have? And ultimately, the answer for that was there has to be a body. There has to be a living, speaking body with authority that can speak throughout the ages in order to answer the questions that come up and to be able to teach, for example, on the nature of Jesus. And then just a little bit later on which books are supposed to be in the Bible. Mm -hmm. That's perhaps one of the easiest examples. And you say, well, how do you even know that these books, because what, what you really have on the one, uh, you know, in, in history is you've got any number of books and letters that are floating around the churches, and some books, uh, certain churches said, well, we think that these should be in the canon and were ultimately excluded, and then other churches had other books that they said, we, the, the, we think that these should not be in the canon that were accepted. Mm-hmm. You had some general agreement on some books, but then a lot of disagreement, and ultimately the church came together and just chose now, that is extremely unsettling to a Protestant to say, well, now, wait a minute. How in the world? So either they had the authority to do this or they didn't. If they did have the authority, then they have authority as the church, some special authority of the Holy Spirit. If they didn't have the authority, then all questions are open, even yeah. today. And there's no response to the, the Dan Browns of the world who want to show up and just say, well, I think these Gnostic works should all be considered. And, you know, there's not much of an answer for that. And so you had to ask, all right, what is necessary? I can't just say, as I used to say in, in my, my previous presuppositional life, I used to just say, well, what's necessary? The Bible. You have to have a, an ultimate authority that speaks, and so here it is. The problem is, is that book doesn't talk. It can't answer questions. It cannot interpret itself. And it was never intended to be all-inclusive. You know, what does the Bible say about, you know, in fact, as Gordon Stein actually challenged Bonson on when he was flailing around, as <laughs> Stein was, you know, he said, well, how about ovum transplant? Is that is that biblical? Uh, you won't find that in your Bible. That's true. You won't find that in the Bible. So what's the, what's the answer? Uh, you know, it, it, is, is, is the Bible absolutely crystal clear on the divinity of Jesus? Well, I think I can make a very strong argument from it, but there are plenty of people for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses and others who reach different conclusions, and you know, and and we, of course, we could say that about any number of things. And so it it, it didn't work. The presuppositional method undermined my Protestant view. It says I it, the Bible, and this is really just the problem of sola scriptura, or solo scriptura, as some have have said. I mean, that doesn't get you anywhere. Uh, yeah. Trying to to make those little distinctions. You can't. The Bible won't work in that in that way. It can't because it can't speak. It can't react. It cannot respond. It can't teach. It can. It's only a text. And so then I had to say, okay, well, what is required? Well, it's really clear. Somebody. Maybe it's not the Roman Catholic Church. And because of course my initial response was, well, it can't be them because they're crazy. They have all these crazy beliefs. But it has to be somebody. Maybe it's the Orthodox. Maybe it's just all bishops of any apostolic succession, which I guess would include Anglicans, Catholics, and Orthodox in some kind of weird conglomerate, or maybe, who knows. But it's got to be some institution, some body that continues, that can speak, that can talk, that can teach, that can decide things like the canon of Scripture. And so... That's the apologetics method now coming at me and saying, all right, well, we have to have that. Because if we don't have that, then it's every man for himself, and it's basically me 
uh, taking a total, totally fideistic leap and grabbing onto an arbitrarily selected book in an arbitrary fashion. Mm-hmm. And there was no escape for that. And, you know, my own method was kind of beating me down in, into that and said, you know, give me a reason as to why you should believe that that book that you're holding is in any way apostolic or complete for that matter. So the, so the answer of, say, Calvin and then uh, subsequently Westminster, you know, the, the fact of the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit, um, when, you know, because you know, that would be something that you would have been familiar with. Sure. When did... Uh, did, did, did that bring any satisfaction? Because from what I hear, what you're saying, if I, you know, we're, we're here in the South, uh, Mark and I are in, in the great state of Alabama, and uh, you know, it sounds like what you're saying is presuppositionalism can get you to about the 30-yard line, but it, but it ain't getting you in the end zone. Um, and uh, when when did you realize that this argument of Calvin, the inward testimony of the Holy Spirit, to know that these books belong in the Bible, that that really was not much of an argument? Yeah, I mean it. Well, and, and that's the thing, is that the presuppositional method kind of undermined that, too, because you say, well, I, I just know it is. And you have to say, well, okay, give me a basis for justifying that, because the guy standing right next to you is saying the same thing, but coming to different conclusions. Mm-hmm. And so, that yeah, that's where you're, you're always reaching for, that inward testimony. Well, you just have to, you just have to follow you know, the Spirit. Like, well, that gives us a lot of grief, because then what you're saying is, the Holy Spirit apparently is teaching a bunch of different people completely contrary things on what are essential doctrines. Oh, and that's another question, too. Who gets to decide which ones are essential or not? Yeah. Uh, but they're, they're reaching completely uh, different answers on these, these questions about salvation, baptism, the sacraments in general, church authority, whatever it is uh, that you're discussing. And then you, you could talk about specific moral things like contraception or abortion or politics or whatever. So we're all reaching these different things, and yet we're all praying for the Holy Spirit. And everyone always has the same answer. When you go uh, to them and say, well, how do you justify this? The answer is, well, th- th- that group over there hasn't prayed enough. And then you go to the other group and you say, well, that group over there says you haven't prayed enough. That's why you're reaching this, this odd conclusion. And they're saying, well, no, we're right. They haven't prayed enough. They're not thinking clearly, or they haven't read their Bible enough. And, you know, I, I kind of saw this being played out in our, um, in our own church, uh, the PCA church that I was at, because there was this, and it was a great church. I love my background. You know, I always want to make that clear. Um, but, but they were continually searching for some kind of way to, to make the faith kind of more tangible. They were actually infusing it with more liturgy and continual programs, but the, but the programs were always kind of devolved into more and more and more Bible studies. And, you know, there, there's only so many Bible studies that you can really go to um, and, and eventually just kind of get exhausted. It's like it's more, it's more than just study. You can't say, well, the reason that we're reaching different conclusions, the reason that we're not obtaining that unity that Christ prayed for before he went to the cross is just because we're, we're just not reading the Bible enough. Now, I think a lot of people are reading the Bible. It's just, if, if you're reading it with the, you know, I'm the final authority, uh, then you're, you're just not going to end up in the same boat. And you say, well, no, I'm not the final authority. I re- rely on lots of guys before me. And then you go to the library. And, of course, that's one thing that everyone loved to do is you 
when you meet somebody, you check out their library first to see, make sure they have all the right books, <laughs> yeah. and who has the cooler book collection and the, you know, the really, the really in crowd, so you can see if they are they are you really reformed or not. Um, but but then you begin to realize, wait a minute, I'm only selecting those books because I've already kind of, you know, those are the books that I selected because I like them. <laughs> but so so ultimately, still everything just comes back to me. And so when you say the inward testimony of Scripture, again, you just go, all you need to do is go right back to either Nicaea or in particular, and you know, like I said, it's, it's most clearly seen in the selection of the canon. That's one of the things that, that you see. I've, I've got several books on my shelf. Um, uh, one's called Canonicity, and it was written by a guy who says, well, here's the test. You know, the test is the six-part test, and all these things, you know, was it written by an apostle? Well, of course, not every book was written by an apostle. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, so then we also have to have this and this and this. And, this. and pre- pretty clear after a while that what we're doing is we have this canon now, and we need to justify it, so we kind of gerrymander a test that would only – it's completely arbitrary, but it would, it, it would somehow only grab the books that are there <laughs> currently – you have to say, well, look, I'm not saying that, that the bishops, when they got together, they did not use a, some particular tests of markers. They did. But, A, who gets to decide what the test is? Mm-hmm. I mean, they, you, you never escape this question. It just keeps coming back. It's like, well, no, wait, it's not just arbitrary because I have a test. And we're like, well, oh, I can come up with a test. That's no problem. Any book that starts with the letter R is canonical. I'm like, well, that's no good test. I'm like, well, who are you to say that's not the right test? Maybe you need to go pray more. See, so you just keep getting into this back and forth, and it's never resolved. Uh, because I, I tried. <laughs> this is one of the reasons, you know, this inward testimony. I really tried, and I wrestled with myself, how can I justify the canon of Scripture without some authority, without appealing to the authority that actually did this at the time? It's just not possible. Um, and and you leave yourself wide open to. In fact, what I saw when I was at, I went to I went to uh, Florida State and uh, took a New Testament class there, and it was by a guy who was very hostile to the Christian faith, as happens often at at, at state universities like that. But he was actually quite honest about how uh, the canon was formed, and I remember just kind of putting this out of my head. I didn't want to think about it, but there were several guys from our little campus ministry group that were there. And when he started to say, well, look, here's how this came to be, they were just floored. And they realized, well, goodness, if this is just a power play by some guys back in the 4th century, then, I mean, how do I have any confidence whatsoever that, that, that it's right? Um, you don't, unless you stand on the, on the authority of those men that, that actually made that decision. I, I, I'll never forget the time I was in a seminary classroom. This is actually at Greenville Seminary. The professor has since uh, gone to be with the Lord, but I'll never forget when he said in our church history class, now mind you, this is at Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary, uh, not exactly a a hotbed of uh, liberal uh, thinking, and uh, the professor said, look guys, the earliest evidence of any ecclesial government in the church, in fact, the only evidence that we have is Episcopal government. I mean, you could have heard a pin drop. (laughs) <laughs> uh, you know, like, and now of course he he didn't agree with that. He you know he he said that you know 
the, the church went off the rails early, and he talked about Episcopal government as, as more just the way it just developed in that culture because of hierarchy was already there. I mean, right. He didn't speak about it from a divine institutional perspective. But again, he was bringing all those presuppositions just assuming that they got it wrong, but at least he was honest enough to admit that you know, there, there's no evidence of what we are going to be doing when you get out of here, and that's presbyterial system. Right. Yeah, th- that's right. I mean, there, you see that continual conflict between what actually happened in, in real time, in real history, and, then, and, and, and the way that we are living today. Um, as you know, as Protestants, and the way I was, I was kind of seeing things, and and that's what really pushed it. I mean, from the one side, on the, again, you know, on the apologetic side, was saying, you know, what do you need to know, defend, and define the faith? What do you have to have? You've got to have a body with that speaks with authority. You just absolutely have to have that, and they have to speak throughout the centuries. Um, whether in, in you know, when you get to that point, you're not even saying the Catholic Church necessarily yet. You're just saying it's got to be somebody. And then on the other end is what you're talking about, the history. Okay, well, let's take a look at, at what actually occurred in real time and see if such a body exists. And, of course, that is, in fact, what you see. And it's very consistent and, you know, tremendous history. And you walk right up. And so, you know, putting those two things together, I said, well, that's, that's where I have to be. Ultimately, it was, you know, when, when we were facing this, you know, we came to understand apostolic succession. We came to understand the sacraments and the necessary uh, – uh, nature of the sacraments and, and church authority, the need for authority, absolutely have to have that authority. It cannot be each man for himself on an island. Um, and that's, you know, that's when we came to that, all right, so so where is this center? And that ultimately will push you to that question of, of the papacy. And that, uh, you know, once, once once we looked into the history of that and the biblical basis for it and just the absolute necessity for it, um, then that's you know kind of the the floodgates uh, burst open and that's that's where we came in but but yeah I mean it was it was that question that that you just keep coming back to over and over and over what do you have to have in order to know what different things are for example I, I frequently get into discussions with uh, my Protestant brothers who will say things like yes but the Scripture says differently or the gospel, you know, that's not the gospel. Or so so you use these terms, these pregnant terms, scripture, mm-hmm. gospel, truth. And, you know, I'm I'm happy to get into the details with them because that's obviously that's that's interesting and you want to talk about specific theological principles or whatever. But ultimately the question has to come back to you keep saying these things as though every you know, the Roman Catholic Church doesn't follow the gospel. Uh, when you say gospel, you're saying that as though that's a self-evident term that we mm-hmm. all understand. Um, but but you have to realize, see, as a Catholic, I can say the gospel because the church tells me what the gospel is. It it, it puts the message together in a way that I, that it can communicate with authority. But as you know, coming from my friends who's arguing with me, his perspective. When he says gospel, he means the gospel as I understand it, as I myself have kind of put things together, which may differ completely from, you know, the thousands of other definitions of the word gospel that exist out there, including those that, you know, for example, the Jehovah's Witnesses or any other any number of other groups. Um, you can't just say gospel, just like you just can't you can't just say 
Scripture says, well, yeah, okay, well, which Scripture? And how do you know that you're putting it together properly? And, you know, so all of these pregnant terms continue to force us back to that ultimate question of authority. And, you know, this is what the method did for me. It's like, where are you getting this from when you say the truth? Because when I, you know, when you do actually appeal to Scripture, you read things like in 1 Timothy 3.15, which that verse kind of came to me in the middle of all this. And it's one of those verses, and it's amazing how this happens, that no matter how many times I had read the New Testament books, there's so many verses that I, like, never saw, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, which, you know, Marcus Grodi does a whole thing about verses I never saw, and, and it's just amazing. And that's one that never jumped out at me. If you had asked me what is the pillar and bulwark of the truth, I would have said without hesitation, the scriptures. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't say that. It says the church. And now looking back on it, using that kind of presuppositional mindset, it says, of course it's the church. It absolutely, as a philosophical necessity, must be the church, the speaking church with authority that that continues throughout the ages because it has a line of apostolic succession. To say that the pillar and bulwark of the truth is a text doesn't make sense. It contains truth. It's inerrant. It is God's inerrant word. It's a tool written by the church for the church, but it cannot itself be the the bulwark of the truth because it has to be read and interpreted. Mm-hmm. And it has to be assembled. <laughs> Somebody had to do that initially and say, what is, what is uh, the Bible? So, you know, I found myself not, you know, so well-versed in this method than not being able to escape it later when I said, okay, well, let's talk about what your presuppositions are and see if you can justify how you can defend the faith. And I realized I cannot defend the faith from a Protestant perspective. Mm-hmm. If sola scriptura is, is real, if that's, where, if that's really what God gave to us, then he left us without a rudder because you absolutely cannot know, defend, and define the faith that way. If it had really been sola scriptura, then you know, going back to Nicaea, you, know, you had all kind of Arian guys, like I said before. They, Arius and, his, and the bishops in his corner had lots of biblical passages, the same ones that Jehovah's Witnesses refer to in, today. Many that seem on their face to show that Jesus is not God, or at least not equal with the Father in that way. Uh, you know, there's things that Jesus doesn't know. Jesus himself was born, came into the world as a baby. I mean, you know, he says, you know, that the Father is greater than I. I mean, on and on and on. So no man knows the day or the hour, not even no, the sun. Yeah, he doesn't know things. So he's, you know, Arius believed that, well, he might have become a lesser deity and so forth. That is, at the very least, one possible position that you could take. And it all comes down to what I would call anchor passages. You know, you've got certain, you know, some people say, well, look, John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. There it is right there. Everyone knows the Word is Jesus, the Word was God, and so forth. Like, well, that's true, and I believe that. I think that's one of the anchor passages from which you interpret the others, like the ones that we're referencing here that, that seem to indicate that Jesus is somehow not equal with the Father or not divine. You have to say, well, I need to interpret those passages in, in, in light of the anchor passages where Jesus refers to himself as, or at least appears to, as divine. He says, that, I, you know, I, before Abraham was, I am, John 1, all the others. And why do I know that those are the anchor passages? Not because I reached that conclusion by myself, because if that's the case, then it, all bets are off again. Mm-hmm. No, it's because the church defined this in 325. That's how I know for sure that that's it. 
And people say, well, you know, how can, how can you rely on the church? The answer comes back, and again, this is driven by the presuppositional method, the impossibility of the contrary. If you listen to the, the Bonson debate with, with Stein, yeah. this comes up over and over and over when he says, you know, it's impossible to be otherwise. I know that, uh, that theism, the theistic system is true because without it you can't prove anything. That's exactly what comes up in the uh, when people say, "Well, how do you know that this is the church, and that the church will, you know, that the papacy, for example, will never lead the church into error?" Because it's impossible to be otherwise. If that's possible, then we have absolutely no basis to believe that the church speaks with authority, because we never know. Okay, so when is the church speaking with authority, and when it isn't? That comes up sometimes. People say, "Well, I think the church had authority." You know, through the first couple of centuries, until it got the canon straight, and then it lost it. That way, at least you get an authoritative canon, but then the church goes away. You go, okay, well, why do you think that? Well, just because I don't like some of the teachings of the church after that. And you go, okay, well, there's multiple problems with that, but the ultimate, you know, philosophical problem with that is, but that, but that's you saying mm-hmm. you are setting the timeline as to when the church supposedly lost authority. How do you know that that's the case? How do you know it didn't lose authority in day three? I mean, it's a completely arbitrary thing, and I understand why people do it. I tried to do it myself. When you grow up in one way and you've you've learned that all your life, to try to change that or to have it undermined is very frightening. And so you reach out to anything and you say, no, 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 I've got to hold on to this this viewpoint. Uh, and then ultimately I just couldn't hold on anymore because I could not define uh, the faith. I, there was no basis for me to say the, the books in my New Testament, or the Old Testament for that matter, but the books in the New Testament in particular, because that was the real fight there until, of course, the Luther uh, issue. But um, but you know, initially you're talking about those New Testament books. How When Dan Brown comes up and says, or you know, one of his acolytes say, why shouldn't this Gnostic gospel be in? It was early. You know, it was written in the 200s or whatever. How come that's not in? Yeah. The, I, I really don't have a good answer for that. I can say it's weird, but lots of things in the Bible are weird. That's not a good answer. It's like, well, I don't, I just, ultimately it's just, I just don't think it should be in there. Uh, and until people say, but it's fascinating what happens. People immediately start referencing, well, but the early Christians didn't, like it. They didn't go with it. Okay, well now we see we're getting closer. <laughs> we're getting closer to that right. There, there's a recognition. Is there an authoritative recognition? Because that's what we need. And unless you have it, um, which we do have it in the church, uh, you can't define anything. And so, um, you know, I, again, just continually driven back to that, uh, uh, to that, to that question. If it's, if it's just me interpreting the Bible for myself, just like was going on uh, back and forth at at Nicaea, then again I I can then what Nicaea turns into is one one side was stronger than the other because they had Constantine on their side exactly and he, th- and he threatened Arius and the other folks with with exile which he did which is precisely uh, what people like Brown do right it, it, absolutely it, you know to the victors go the spoils Bart Ehrman does that at at uh, University of North Carolina. He absolutely does, and that is why I saw and have heard of of many uh, young men and women when they go to college and they learn this stuff, or when people read silly things like Dan Brown's works, they lose their faith. That's right. Because they go, oh, wait a minute, is that really what happened? 
Well, see, I read that and I go, yes, yeah, constantly. It was kind of a rough time. It was, uh, you know, we we tend to think of Athanasius and the others as these men with like they they have a glow and they just kind of walk around with togas with their arm outstretched, you know, saying grand things. Look, there was some. I mean, Athanasius was exiled like five times That's right. and and had. You know, they had brutal political battles, and yes, Constantine was standing there with a sword saying, you guys better settle this because I'm not going to have this war going on in my, in my empire. Yes, you do have those things going on. I would call that God's hand in history and, he, and, and in his church. Yeah, there's lots of stuff that goes on, and God many times uses many different forces and factors by which to uh, – you know, spread his kingdom. This was one of those times. So, but 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 you see, it's either one of two things. It's either a pure political play, which is kind of the Marxist approach. Everything's political. It's just a power game. Well, if that's true, then we might as well all go home. You guys can shut down the website. There's no point in going to church on Sunday. It's nothing but a man-centered power game, which is what we hear from many, uh, many. You know, if you watch any. Uh, you know, like sometimes you see these on Discovery Channel or the rest where they're talking about the Bible. Um, frequently, it's it's people from this perspective that just think, you know, the Jesus seminar uh, types. Where And, it, and like, it's not surprising, Mark, that, that, you know, from what you have just beautifully given to us, that what happens in 18th century, 19th century European Protestantism in the university? You know, you get Schleiermark or, you know, we can't, right. we can't defend the faith anymore, but it's about some uh, crisis experience. <laughs> <laughs> you know that that I have, and um, you know I think it's very interesting as you lay lay these things out. Um, you know, really, where do you go? And I think you've already hinted at. You know, none of what you said in and of itself will prove, say, the Roman Catholic Church. Now you have to look at the Orthodox, the Anglican. Um, what what made you? Uh, because you, you already hinted at the you know that sense of horror. It can't be the Roman Catholic Church. Sure. What? What was it? Can you can you think of that time when you said it's the Catholic Church and I'm going to put away my prejudices and my biases against them? Sure. And you were warmed to them. Was there a work that you had read, a book that you had read, an art, whatever? What what was it? Yeah. Uh, before I mention that, I will mention just one thing really quick, just so we can wrap up the other thought. Because you, what you just said about you know that that argument doesn't really answer the question you know, once you get into or it's got to be somebody it's maybe it's not the Roman Catholic Church I think actually in one sense it does mm-hmm. because ultimately you have to have a body with a with a singular speaking authority mm-hmm. and that's exactly what you don't have in the Anglican Church or in the Orthodox faith you yeah. do have that in the Roman Catholic Church which I just like to call the Catholic Church that's right it's, it's the Christian Church I really don't like to get into these terms you know the, there's the Christian Church but it does have a center, and and that by necessity, you know, it exists by necessity. First of all, uh, because otherwise you just have no idea. All right, where's the center? When has the church taught? And you say, well, it's taught in these councils. All right, which councils are authoritative? Well, someone has to answer that question. So you've got to have that singular voice. And God, of course, knowing that, gave us that voice. And we could, you know, we could talk about the papacy all day. But I do think that the presuppositional method also gets you to that answer. Okay. But to turn to to the question that you um you just posed it i think really you know i was i was ultimately kind of forced to this because i realized wait a minute all right i i one thing i knew is i couldn't stay where i was yeah 
uh, and of course, my wife, being much smarter than I, realized that sooner. <laughs> like, and she realized, uh, well, you know, for her, it was like, oh, that makes sense to me because she had always kind of wrestled with these things, and she was deeply involved in leading women in her campus ministry and all this, also from a PCA perspective. But you know, girls would come to her with these Bible verses that talk about running the race, holding fast, you know, not falling away, and, and so forth, and. What do these mean? Well, Paul's not really being serious there. He's just speaking, you know, all that stuff, and it really bothered her. So when she when she kind of heard this, when she really heard the presentation of the the, the, the historic church, this grand institution with the this, this historical authority, immediately just kind of clicked, and she's like, "Oh, that's it." And we need to be Catholic, and I mean Roman Catholic. Because they are the, you know, they're kind of the, it's clear. And I, of course, I said, oh, well, you don't understand. It, it, Not so fast, honey. <laughs> yeah, we can be Anglican and all this. Um, so it, it took me a little bit longer to to, to kind of get it through my uh, thick head. But because I still had all this, the kind of the, what you would call the standard objections, all the the so-called weird things, the Marian doctrines, what is purgatory, I don't really understand the nature of the papacy, so forth and so on. Uh some things that were very, very helpful in that regard were um, – well, I'll mention one thing right off the bat. This actually occurred well before um, uh, I, I got down this line was a debate with, again, my hero, Dr. Bonson, with a Catholic speaker who used to work at Catholic Answers, now has kind of gone a, a different way named Gary Matatix. Mm-hmm. But, but it was a fascinating debate, and it – and it, because every other debate that I had heard Dr. Bonson in with uh, you know, various atheists or uh, kind of so-called progressive uh, religious folks and all the rest were just fantastic. It was complete annihilation. This one, I just was kind of stunned, although I never admitted it. <laughs> but there were a lot of questions that there really wasn't a good answer for, and it just bothered me, and it kind of floated around in there. And then once we started to get down this line – and, and and in that debate, they, they talked about Mary. They talked about these things, and I thought, gosh, those answers were really at least reasonable. They were reasonable. They that made sense. That didn't seem so weird. But then I, you know, just quickly dismissed that. All that came back once I got to the point of, okay, we can't stay where we're at. We need to be at a place where it has the apostolic authority and the succession. We need to be at a place where the sacraments are administered. I I understand now the sacramental nature of life. That that you know that which was now very beautiful for me. I understood the history of the of the faith, and I wanted to be in with that. Uh, you know, I wanted to be linked to my great brothers and sisters who had gone before me. Uh, but, yeah, the, you know, the, the Roman Catholic Church had all these weird things. I remembered a lot of those things I had heard from that debate, and then I started to read a lot of things. You know, Catholic Answers was particularly helpful mm-hmm. uh, there. They had a, they have a great website that, that kind of walks through the... Uh, the the, ver- the the list uh, and and gives um, a, a lot of good explanations of that what it actually is uh, as opposed to what the what the what people think the church teaches which mm-hmm. was what I found overall uh, very stunning is every single thing that I thought I knew about the Catholic Church was just dead on wrong it, it, when I really understood what the Catholic Church taught I thought gosh that's beautiful yeah. And, and 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 very rich. There was just a, a weight to it. There was a, there was an authoritative weight to it. But then the big whammy is when you see people like our great heroes, like Augustine, 
Now, in the PCA world, as you know, everyone loves Augustine. Mm-hmm. We're going to quote Augustine all the time, just like Calvin did. He's great. Except I never understood that, A, he was a staunch Catholic. B, he said things like the perpetual virginity of Mary, the, uh, the you know, immaculate conception, all of that. You know, and, 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 and various other, the, the primacy of the Sea of Peter, how that is the, you know, the, the defense of the papacy, on and on and on and on. And so when I start seeing quotes like that, not just from him, but from every one of the church fathers, it's just overwhelming. It's like, oh, wait a minute. All of these great men of the faith seem to just understand this stuff implicitly and are quite vocal about defending it. And that's where, you know, it really, as much as we love to say, well, who cares what Augustine said? I say, I mean, now that's kind of embarrassing to to think that, that you can do that but i used to do it all the time then i was realizing wait a minute i think i think i've just misunderstood uh, a lot of this and so it was through a gradual process where i just kind of one by one each one of those objections when i understood for example about mary and you know my previous understanding was well she was a woman selected by god to bear jesus and that's it could have been anybody she's she's a great christian example but that's about it and you think about, wait a minute, you understand that this woman was the only human on the, that has ever lived that has actually had a flesh and blood connection to the sovereign Lord of the universe. She shared flesh and blood. I mean, you try to get your mind around that, and you can't. There's just no way. There's no way to fully understand the implication of that. And so when you say, okay... So is it at least reasonable that God, in preparing what is the most momentous event in all of human history, that he would prepare a perfect vessel for God himself to now come into the world, and that then that vessel would be elevated and held to a special esteem? Of course, that's the most reasonable thing in the world. And then you read things like Luke's direct quote of, um, of Samuel when uh, when. I'm forgetting right now whether it was out of First or Second Samuel, but talking about you know, making it very clear that Mary is the Ark of the New Covenant. Yes, yeah, Second I mean, Samuel it, six and the, the yes. connection with, between that and the visitation. That that in particular blew me away because it is a direct quote. It is so clear. And and in fact, when I started to study that, I realized that even Protestant scholars had said, well, clearly Luke is is referencing when the ark is being brought to David and he does the liturgical dance and so forth, and it blesses the house for three months. I mean, it's, it, you're just replacing words. It's so direct. And so just one by one, each one of these things kind of fell away, and I was just drawn. I mean, there was an intellectual aspect to it, but there was clearly a spiritual aspect to it of, of just being, you know, kind of falling in love with the church, realizing that the church set on this um, this great, tradition that a lot of times it seemed almost like she didn't even realize today it seemed like well you know all i've ever seen in the catholic church it's almost kind of scared to say what it really is um and and then realizing no wait it was it was the catholic church that preserved virtually everything that we know and love about western civilization uh, art science mathematics um uh, books uh philosophy um, de- defended the the West against attacks by its enemies. Uh, on and on and on it goes. You know, uh, spread the gospel, compiled the Bible, spread the gospel to the to the to the world. You know, protected um, the immigrant, uh, t- 
took care of orphans and widows and educated people and ran the hospitals and on and on and on and on. It was truly the light of the world. And, you know, everything just there was a there was a breaking point there that after after I, I just couldn't even find an objection, but I found myself kind of excited by that. I realized that I really I need to find where the center is and I think I found it and it's very exciting. There's one thing that, that is true is in my life. I remember I remember even as a Protestant, and Protestants kind of exist in a somewhat Gnostic uh, existence where everything is kind of just internal. It's just kind of a mind thing. You know, you say, well, bow the knee to Christ. Okay, what does that mean? It means appropriate Christ by faith. What does that mean? What does that look like you know, on a day-to-day life? Now, again, I'm, you know, I'm kind of pointing out these, some of these uh, things that I had difficulty with. I will say most of the Protestants I knew were much better than their theology. Yeah. <laughs> I would just want to get that to be very clear. Um, and sometimes it was the flip side when I would go to a Catholic church. In fact, when we were on our journey, we couldn't receive, and we'd go into a Catholic church. And there was a very beautiful one there in, in Montgomery, St. Peter's, oh. and, uh, and you know, the, the priest was just tremendous, and they were working with us, and I'd go in, and it's this beautiful thing, and I'm being brought to tears by what's going on, and I'm looking around, and people are like in shorts and flip-flops looking at their watch, and you're like, wait a minute, you, know, don't, you don't realize what's going on here? Do you really understand the nature of, of what's occurring in front of you? No, many didn't, and so... You know, there was that dynamic going on, but it really didn't uh, uh, didn't stop us. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it it, it eventually it was like a, it was like a dam breaking. And uh, but oh, but just back to my point. Even during my Protestant life, I always wanted I wanted there to be something tangible to the faith. I really kind of liked it when you'd, you'd watch a movie and someone would be holding a crucifix as though it were special or holy water. You know, you're drawn to that. You're like, I wish, I wish that we had something like that, but we just don't. You know, we treat our Bibles like that, of course. You wouldn't see, you know, it was like, well, things don't matter. It's all about faith. Okay, well, then throw your Bible in that fire. It's just paper. Now, no one would ever do that, see. So we've got, you know, even, even in Protestant land, we, we kind of implicitly understand this. But that notion of the sacred... And looking back in history, and it's like, wait, every Christian up until you know very recently has understood that there are sacred things. Mm-hmm. And I wish I had that, and I wish I wasn't just sitting by myself having to launch my prayers out into deep space. You know, the notion of confession where the church now, the, as the body of Christ, speaking with authority, sitting on the 2,000-year-old throne, is now speaking back to me, giving me a verbal answer, was just amazing. Um, and so all of those things kind of culminated, and of course, just kind of seeing what was going on in the Protestant world, where, you know, uh, and 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 this is kind of the consistent uh, testimony. I talked to my friends who are even still, you know, they're still in in uh, in in the Protestant world, but what they do is they go and they hear a sermon, and then they go and leave the church, and then what you go what you do is you go to lunch and you criticize it. Like, I like this, I didn't like that, he's wrong on this, he must be a super lapsarian, he must be that, he, he hasn't read so-and-so, I didn't like that song, uh, you know, because everything is just about the sermon. Uh, whereas in the Catholic world, the homily is something of a plus or minus, but it's not the focus. The focus is the Eucharist, the focus is the actual communion with the God of the universe, and that is always there no matter what. Even if you get kind of a fruity priest, or it's kind of an odd mass, or whatever, the Eucharist is still there and has been for 2,000 years. 
So when when everything just kind of culminated, we we uh, we were on the road. We came up to Birmingham in August of '04, began RCIA. It was kind of a good break because we came up in August. RCIA started in September, and uh, we have just loved every minute of it. Wow, that that is uh, that is great. You know, that, you you touched on you know when you started to understand the the Marian doctrines, for example, that uh, you know the beauty of the doctrines and the teachings and and how uh you know i'm reminded of archbishop sheen's words you know that uh, i'm going to paraphrase probably poorly but you know there, there there's not a handful of people who hate uh what the catholic church actually teaches but there's millions who hate what they think the catholic church uh teaches and right um when you actually really i think begin to get over those hurdles like you said you see this beauty you see this 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 glory this grandeur it's this this depth this history and uh you know it's great that you're uh back in the in the church back in the fullness of the faith and uh anything you're doing now in the church you uh exercising any of your gifts and talents uh in the local parish well uh yeah we we do um i'm at our our lady of sorrows in birmingham and i do a lot of teaching in the adult ed class um uh, particularly in church history and uh apologetics and 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 some uh, things like that we try to focus on those areas where uh where people are going to hear the most uh when they're discussing things with their protestant brethren like points of history for example the crusades is a particular area that i that i do a lot of teaching in uh the inquisition the history of the canon is 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 an area that i that i am fascinated with and just uh, really love um other little areas like that and uh I try to do you know some writing and 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 try to stay engaged in uh in in various ways with uh with sunday school and and its direction and and trying to because that you know that's one thing that we've really seen is that there's kind of a uh, it's it's now we're now seeing a resurgence in in catechesis and teaching but there's really there were there was like a lapse there for a while where you know you have a lot of cradle catholics who are very devout and faithful but a lot of times just didn't really understand mm-hmm. their faith. In fact, when we were coming in in RCIA, we had already been studying the church obviously for a long time and you know, we were there. We we just, you know, we were so excited. And there were some cradle Catholics that were there to just just out of interest or maybe they were being someone's sponsor or whatever it was. And we found ourselves kind of informing them as to, for example, you know, why is the baptismal front in the in the front rather than in the back or does it matter or why, you know, what 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 is going on in the different parts of the mass? We weren't even Catholic yet, um, and I was just very surprised by and virtually nobody knew the Bible really, um, and you know we're seeing now that being addressed in various parishes, and so we're doing everything we can to try to do that. My wife uh, is an instructor in the the catech- Catechism of the Good Shepherd atrium that we have up here, and. Um, it's just uh, you know a tremendous teacher and instructor, and so we try to stay as busy as as possible. Um, I've I've gone around a couple different forums and given my story, and uh, we've seen many of our friends uh, come into the church. In fact, uh, some good friends of ours who were both staunch Southern Baptists uh, just came in, and uh, and he is now out there uh, being an apologist, and so. It's it's a very interesting time. In fact, just a, a little side note along that time, uh, it's. You know what, what what we saw with with the the, the strong uh, uh, emphasis now kind of almost kind of throw what George Weichel called the the new fogies, mm-hmm. kind of talking about the new young priests who are 
just really, you know, they're not so focused on administration or, or you know, politics or that type of thing, but they're really just focused on being apostolic teachers. Uh, you know, these throwbacks and, 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 uh, and who are, you know, really kind of infusing the parishes now with, uh, with this excitement and, and, and devotion and instruction, uh, we're now seeing that kind of uh, have its, its – uh, it, it, it's almost like a, like a spring – well, you know, John Paul II yeah. called it the springtime of, of the church. I think I we're really beginning to see the fruit of that wonderful uh, papacy of John Paul II, as you said, you know, as Weigel hinted, the, the new fogies, uh, the fruit, the many vocations that were inspired by his witness and continuing now with Pope Benedict XVI – well, uh, as we wrap this up, uh, Mark, I want to thank you for joining us uh, to this episode of Call to Communion. And well, thank you. Uh, as Mark said, you know, one of the things we hear non-Catholics say is, you know, oh, Catholics don't know their Bible or Catholics don't know their history. They don't know this great treasure. And, and some use that as an excuse not to come into the Catholic Church. I want to emphasize to you, if you're out there and, 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 you, and you're going to use that as an argument, you know, one thing I want you to think about is, why don't you think about coming in? Think about entering into full communion with the Catholic Church so that those gifts and so those talents and those abilities that you have been graced by Almighty God for would be used for the cause of the truth. Because I'm going to tell you something right now. The truth that's going to be standing, I believe firmly, on that eschatological day, the one church that will be standing in the midst of everything, is going to be the Catholic Church. It's the church that has stood the test of time for these 2,000 years. It's a church that's history doesn't run 50 years, 100 years. In my former denomination and Mark's, 37 years right now. It's a church that goes way back. And we have confidence in Almighty God. And you can have the confidence that those works that you do, those apostolic labors, will indeed bear fruit, not just for today, but for all eternity. Join us next time on Call to Communion. Thanks, and God bless. This has been a Called to Communion podcast. Visit us on the web at www.calledtocommunion.com. O Son of